The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents No Neutrality, where we have a roundtable of contributors pushing the antithesis in every area of life. From family to government, apologetics to homeschooling, being a wife and a mother, a husband, a father, single, widow, business owner or employee, you will hear commentary, essays, lectures, blogs and battle plans on how to bring forth the Christian worldview to all of life. In Matthew 4, 1, we find that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. And now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. What I want to do before we go further is tie together some ideas that, that I've been covering here and take a look at something that that I believe in the Reformation they made huge steps forward on how to state clearly what the authority of God's people is. Because that's going to be important as to how I interpret the Scripture and how you interpret the Scripture, whether we follow the same rules or not. Biblical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the rules of interpreting literature. That's all that is. And it's biblical because it's how we interpret the Bible. Would you interpret the Bible differently from the way you would interpret something else? Well, in some respects you would, in some respects you wouldn't. And this is what I want to look at briefly. Modern historical mm -hmm. grammatical exegesis is the standard way that we're told to do it. It's a good method. It it's, keeps us tied to the text. And that's probably the most important thing about it. it. It forces us to look at the words as they're written, as best we can see what they mean and, and how they go together grammatically. Strictly, it requires the original languages, but most modern doctrines of Scripture affirm that the inspiration is also there in the translation. And that's important because the inspiration is what God does to the words, not just any words, but these words, not just any words God even himself might be speaking. Even during the time when the Scriptures were being written down, what we define from Scripture is he was saying lots of things that didn't get written down. So just the fact that God speaks it doesn't mean that it was intended to be that full context, that, that, that bounded context, the fuller context of every word that he, he wants to be understood and interpreted. And in fact, to the extent in whatever ways, I know this is under hot dispute today, that he might speak today, that he might direct our lives today, he wants that word to be contained within the context of what he has already revealed. If it is not according to the scriptures, then there is no life in it. But what's always stuck me as odd is that this method of grammatical historical exegesis isn't really outlined in scripture. Uh, in fact, it would be nice if the Bible had a little section that said, now these are the rules for interpreting us, but it doesn't say that. What we see by example, lots of people in the Bible interpreted and applied things that they saw that God had said, uh, and we find that they really weren't 
completely into grammatical historical exegesis as the method for understanding scripture. So in other words, when God is inspiring people to let us know how he wants it interpreted, he wants to be sure, and this is a second commandment issue, not to make any graven images. He wants to be sure that we don't make a graven image out of a method of interpreting his word. Because his truth comes to us, not through a methodology, as important as a methodology might be, his truth comes to us by the Holy Spirit speaking through his word. And that's always got to transcend any technique for understanding what it's saying. It doesn't lay the technique aside, but it's the Holy Spirit speaking in the word. So um, let's take a look just real briefly at some other assumed methods of interpretation in the Bible. For instance, Paul uses allegory. He says there's Hagar and there, there Rebecca. They teach us something about how God functions in saving people. Uh, Paul used arguments from the lesser to the greater. Was this written for the oxen or for us? He was talking about, in, in the Old Testament, it says, you shall not muzzle the ox who treads out the grain. Well, any modern devotee of Peter would go, well, that's good. I mean, you shouldn't be cruel to the oxen, muzzling them while they're doing your work. But then Paul says, well, wait a second. Uh, was this written so that we could be nice to oxen? Or was it written so we would understand that a person mm -hmm. ought to make his living based on the work that he does? You don't muzzle him while he's doing your work. He should, and specifically, he applied to those who labor in the word. Shouldn't they be paid for their labor in the word? Uh, I realize that's a whole hornet's nest on its own, but my point is the method of interpretation Paul was using was to take something about oxen and apply it to something that really isn't technically within the purview of that text on oxen. They would string text together based on common ideas and words, not necessarily on context. And so the one that's really familiar to most of you is the whole section which we would title as uh, Proof of Original Sin. It's found in Romans. Uh, All have sinned uh, and fallen short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. And what Paul does, is he strings together a whole series of verses, like it's, it's beads on a thread, um, and he doesn't do an examination of their context, what they're talking about. He just pulls out a bunch of sin verses out of the Old Testament, sort of willy-nilly, and he strings them together. Uh, a good grammatical historical exegete, if you tried to do something like that on a seminary paper, uh, they'd probably give you a C. And they would say, yeah, those are very good verses. They do show sin, but you got to do your work on seeing to it that in the context of each... Okay, you get it. Paul would have made a C. Um, they didn't think now in the New Testament that you could guess from the context of the Old Testament, the grammatical, historical, exegetical context of the Old Testament, that's simply to say the words as you find them there, how it would necessarily apply to the New Testament. Applications are often made with 2020 hindsights. For instance, Judas fulfilling Psalm 109, let his office a number, another take. Now, you wouldn't read Psalm 109 and think, ah, Someday there's going to be a betrayer of Jesus Christ. But in looking back, they felt like you could take that verse there, not in its grammatical historical context, and turn around and apply it to the life of Christ. Um, then Paul tells us very directly, all of the events in the Old Testament were written down for us on whom have come the ends of the ages. 
I want you to stop and think about how that gets you to look at Scripture. This is his perspective on Scripture, and he's inspired, so it's God's perspective on his word. What all the different ways that the New Testament says that it fulfills the old have in common is one simple assumption. Who Jesus is, he's God. He's the reason anything was written down in the Old Testament. There would be no Old Testament if God himself didn't come in the flesh. He's the reason for every word written. More than that, he's the reason for everything that was done in all of history. It's because God himself, the Lord of history, was going to come and pull the whole thing together. Furthermore, he's the reason the world continued five minutes after Adam and Eve sinned. It's Jesus Christ. And every time you're dealing with a heretic, with a twisting of scripture, with anything, take a look at who Jesus is and the presuppositions of the person who's dealing with it and ask, is he simply setting Jesus aside is another interesting thing that happened, another great man, another, yes, God himself, but you know, God is a secondary thing to the glory of all creation. Or is he placing in his understanding Jesus Christ is the sinner? And once you do that, you can go into the Old Testament and you can see, good grief, it all talks about him. And you find out how it does, and then you know you've understood it. And that really is the early church's approach to the understanding and how they argued in all the scriptures. And in fact, we're told that when Jesus was first talking after his resurrection to his first disciples that he was walking along talking to, what he did is he explained how in all the scriptures it was taught that the Christ was to come and to die for his people. So he is... Jesus is not just another character in the Bible. He is the fullness of God dwelling in human form bodily. That's not something that you just take lightly and set aside. By the way, this has direct applications to all of the issues of the Hebrew roots business. Okay, There is nothing that Moses did that isn't fulfilled in Christ. And if somebody takes Jesus as saying, yeah, that's pretty good, Jesus is okay, but you know he has all this other stuff he wants you to do, you miss the whole point of who Jesus is. And that's the problem with it. Therefore, everything Jesus does is to vindicate, fulfill, make real, play it again, Sam, the way it should go over the entire history of God's people's failure to make it go the right way. The life of Christ is presented as a reenactment of the history of God dealing with his people throughout history, as recorded in the Old Testament. Now, we're all familiar with the Christmas story, and when we look at Matthew telling his story of Jesus, he finds the fulfillment of the prophetic comment, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, if you go back and take a look at that passage in context, you won't get Jesus uh, going down into Egypt persecuted and coming back. But with 2020 hindsight, you would never go to that passage before Matthew and point it out. It was a messianic prophecy. But once Jesus explained it on the road to Emmaus and later to Matthew, he gave him more than a surprising interpretation of the verse. Surprise! It's about Jesus! No. He gave them a way to see all the Old Testament revelation as the story of the life and work and ministry and meaning of Jesus the Christ. 100% God. 100% man. Never set him aside as you read any portion of the Bible. In the Gospels, we're going to see the same idea, especially here in the temptation of Christ. Now, Christ is in the wilderness. It's a desert made of the earth. We covered that last week by man's rebellious dominion. More than that, it's a desert that depicts the desert of our social life where God is not 
ruling. And Jesus is being tempted, just like Israel was tempted when they were in the desert. His answers to Satan show that what Israel should have been saying, instead of grumbling at Satan's suggestions, since they were God's people, they should expect a better circumstance in life. Hey, people of God, you ought to have it better than this. God delivered you, and this is what you get, a desert? Okay, Jesus is out in the desert. They grumbled, and Jesus gives the proper answer that Israel should have given in the desert when they were stuck without water, without food, saying, his God just brought us out of Egypt, where at least we had onions and stuff to put on our food to make it taste good, and here we are in the desert, we're just going to die. Is this why God did it? Jesus' answers to Satan indicate a conscious realization of the purpose of his being there under exactly those desert conditions, responding as the faithful son, in contrast with the unfaithful son, Israel. Unlike Israel, he was not given even miraculous water from a rock to drink. He wasn't given manna from heaven or, or a flock of quail covering the camp four feet deep. He endured all Israel endured and more. He's walking through their failure. Then at his weakest point, he's put to the test. Now, we see here in that test a continuation of God's answer to the problem of evil, reaching back even to creation itself. You know the problem of evil. You get it thrown in your face. If God is good and he's all-powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Couldn't he do something about it? The whole gospel story, by the way, is that answer to the problem of evil. And one of the reasons we miss it so often is, is simply because we uh, are, are, are looking for a quick and simple answer. God doesn't have a quick and simple answer. At least 30 years of, of life and two years of ministry is not a quick and simple answer. It's, it's his answer, though, and, and so it needs to be unpacked here. The whole gospel story is his answer, not just one or two verses, one or two theories. Let's review it. God began his answer in the beginning of Matthew. We're looking at Matthew in chapter 4 right now. By writing the history of the world like a table of contents, and he uses genealogies and the Sabbath is his organizing um, a tool for this table of contents. He doesn't tell you anything about these kings and these people that he mentions, but um, he lists them, and he lists them in groups of seven. You know, it's, this is the boring part of Matthew that you skip over real fast. And so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. It's just the begats. All these kings, these great men of history, trying desperately to fix the evil of society, but each group of kings ends in failure but also because it's organized in groups of seven. Each failure is a promise that maybe, maybe there's a Sabbath coming, there's a rest coming, there's a healing coming. They can't fix it, but by grouping them in sevens, God is saying they plow and they plant in hope that Sabbath is coming. The king is coming. These are the kings that failed. Then who should appear at the beginning of Matthew's story, chapter 2, but God himself, not as the all-powerful King Oz, not as the magic fix-it man, but alone in one of the deserts of mankind, the place that geographically had to be held by the great empires because of where it was, but it was of no real value otherwise, and the people were a genuine pain, and they were just a genuine pain in something that you can't mention when you're exegeting the word of God, of course. Here God is. He's born. No, 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 no. God is conceived for a day, for a whole day. The God of the universe is in free fall 
sharing the risks of every conceived child that's ever been conceived floating down the fallopian tube. The beginning of God's answer to evil is, here he is like you. There was a time you were floating in free fall. Were you going to implant early in the fallopian tube and, and, and be an ectopal pregnancy and probably kill your mother in the process? Were you going to fail to implant? Was somebody going to create a hostile environment? So you were flushed out. You know, it's kind of like you get hit by a car and you're on the street and there you are and somebody says, that's ah, not calling an ambulance, just let him die. Okay. What kind of a world are you coming into? Who are you? And there's, there's God. You know, when we, when we say, well, I can see how Jesus can become a human being, but really God is his group of cells madly growing as they float down. Uh, just how small is your God anyway? You think it's a no big deal? Hey, I became a human being. What do you think it means to be a human being? It means you go from being a fertilized egg where the DNA comes together before there's any cellular division to an old, old, creaky person in a fetal position in a bed, scarcely able to talk, defecating, urinating, needing someone to change your diapers. Okay? That's what it means to be human. God became a human being. Just like you. You want to begin to understand God's answer to evil? His first answer to evil is, I'm right here with you, my friend. He hops into your foxhole. Now here in Matthew 4, we shift to the beginning of his ministry, the beginning of his answer to how God can permit evil if he is all-powerful. And it's this, whatever God requires of you, he's not asking of you more than he himself is willing to endure. You say, wait a second, how's that an answer to evil? Well, well first of all, it tells you this, the God of the universe is not sitting up on some ivory throne thundering down what you ought to be doing. Do it, no, no, you idiot, do it that, no, 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 do it the other, what is wrong with you? Yeah, he, he does that sometimes too. But the point is, his answer to how he can be all-powerful and yet there be evil in the world is to step into your foxhole and start returning fire, just like a normal person would. Whatever God requires of you, he's not asking of you in facing this evil, which you can't explain, which I can't explain, that he himself is not also willing to endure. So he goes into the desert where all others fail, where God started in the very beginning and deals with the issues of life personally, not by safe commands from heaven to others to crush them or to show them the way that they can't even follow, but to be there with them, saying, I've had to live under those same commands. So let's take a look at that desert, because this, this is fascinating. This is one of the really fun parts of the Bible. The howling chaos and confusion nails right there in the first verses of this Bible story itself. The tovu wavohu. Now you can see in those words, by the way, they're one of those things that only appear like two or three times in the whole Bible. Tovu wavohu. You can hear from the sound of it, really, a lot of what you pick up in the Hebrew. It's just, it's dumbly jumbly. You know, the tovu wavohu. You, you can just, you can hear the chaos there. In the beginning, the earth was without form and void. It was tovu of Ohu. And God's spirit hovers on the face of that deep. Through all of the, the creation accounts, the pagan creation accounts, there's always this, this unfathomable, undealable chaos that somehow they explain how the order comes out of it. 
comes either comes out of it or is applied to it or something like that. But, but there's the chaos monster, the deep. The deep is the chaos of almost every culture that's anywhere around something that's deep, like an ocean. <clears throat> that's not the way it is in the Bible. In the Bible, it's God's chaos. He created all that stuff. It's not chaos to him. The dark is not dark to him. It is to us, so he says, let there be light. But to him, he's, he's, he's got it. It says, God's spirit hovers on the face of that deep, and God's spirit is described like a bird hovering. This isn't missed by Noah, who sends out birds who fly around over the deep and can't find a place to land. What can men do, either to create or to overcome the judgment of God? His judgments to save or his judgments to destroy? What can you do about it? And there God is, holding up that little boat. Noah had to make the boat, but God holds up the boat in the design of it, and there's all creation held in his hand while the earth is returned to a formless void. The Hebrew term tovu avohu is used of the deep in Genesis 1, and then it's used by Moses to describe Israel's wandering in the desert, Deuteronomy 32. He found him in a desert land, in a wasteland. He's depicting Israel as an individual person. In a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. See, he takes him and he starts giving him form and shape and so precious the way you, pr you protect the, your, 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 your cornea. He circles him. And, and now notice the shift here. As an eagle stirs up his nest and hovers over its young, spreads out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. See, he, he starts depicting his people as part of that chaos. The, the children of Israel in the desert, they're, they're part of that chaos. He hovers over them and he protects them. And he begins to give form and shape to them. He utters his law and starts structuring what society ought to be. His people aren't merely surrounded by a desert. They are the unformed social desert. And he takes them up on his wings and he flies with them. And then again in Jeremiah 24, 23, we see what happens as people that on eagle's wings were being flown through the desert. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, that tovu avohu word again. It's a creative moment, a pregnant moment. And the heavens, they had no light, and I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. He's returning people, he's getting that image of a primal, formless void, and his people now, with all he had given them, have, have simply destroyed themselves and returned to the void. And now Jesus is standing alone in the wilderness, in the formless chaos, representing you before God. First, the Spirit descends on him like a dove by the Jordan, streams in the desert, the river of life that's become a tiny little river and flows down into a sea that is now dead is that picture of what we do when we're cut off from God. And then from there, the same Holy Spirit, after descending on him like a dove in that wasteland, the howling desert, sends him out for 40 days and nights, and he endures privation and hunger. He does it for you. He's standing in your place as one who cannot make it through the desert our sins creates in our lives. And he stands there with you, saying, I know you can't make it. And like a good redneck, he says, y'all just get back and watch. 
That, for those of you who don't know, that's the famous last words of a redneck. Y'all just get back and watch his stuff. And then after 40 days, that time of privation, which he endures, Satan comes to him to keep him in the wilderness with his temptations, and Satan has something to say to him. So you see, the first answer to the problem of evil is God saying, it's my problem, not your problem, my little doubting friend. Look, it's my problem with you. The problem of evil in some abstract thing of, like, can God do it? What kind of a God is it? It's not that at all. It's my problem with you. It's the world's problem with you. It's your problem with you. And I'm with you now. I'm human. I'm now facing your bleak, hopeless future. And Satan comes personally to me the way he comes personally to you. And I'll show you how to deal with it. I'll show you the order that I'm going to bring out of this chaos that you find so hopeless that you must doubt me and say, how can you be great? How can you be good if you let this mess? The first answer is, I become human. I share it with you. I'm now facing that desert, that formless void with you. I can handle this. You're the problem, not me. The real question is, can something happen to you? Is that possible? Can a leopard change its spot? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? question one of the prophets asked. And now we're going to see how God handles this. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Neutrality on the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network. Don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to download your favorite audiobooks and podcasts. And if you are a Christian Reconstructionist blogger and you'd like to contribute your blogs into this audio blog format, click on the volunteer link on our website, send us an email, and let us know you'd like to join the team. May Christ be glorified and His kingdom extended from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.